This sermon is titled James chapter 1. Be enriched as you listen. All right, we're going to spend time in God's word and then we're going to spend time praying together as well. Are you all ready? All right, so what we're going to do starting today is do a book study as we announced last week. We're going to do a book study of the epistle of James. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you brought your Bibles. Uh, I know these days you can carry it very conveniently on your phone, so you, you're welcome to do that. Uh, I like to carry a physical Bible, just, just, just like it. <laughs> so if you have your Bibles, please open your Bibles to James. And uh, today, you know, our, our plan is to spend one chapter each Sunday. Now, unfortunately, from my experience this morning at 8 o'clock service, <laughs> we didn't complete chapter 1. Uh, we had to stop with verse 12. Let's see how we do. I don't know what happened in the other locations. Uh, but let's see how we do here today in the 1030 service. And uh, uh, that's our plan. You know, one chapter every Sunday. We'll see how it goes. Uh, if we need to extend it, we, we will do that. Now, whenever we study a book... Um, it's always good to get some background, some information about the author uh, who, uh, who wrote the book, some information on you know, why he wrote it, to whom he wrote it, uh, just giving us context so that when we start reading the text of the scriptures, uh, we understand uh, and we uh, also, of course, interpret it in the context in which it was written. So, just a little bit of background. Uh, this epistle of James was, of course, written by James, so it's named after him. But this man, James, was the half-brother of Jesus. Now think about that, the half-brother of Jesus. So the Bible tells us, and we see this in Matthew 13, that the Lord Jesus had four other brothers and sisters. We don't know how many, and their names are not there, but the names of the four brothers are there. And James' name is the first in line, so we take it that he was the eldest of the other four. And uh, there is the youngest of them, Judas, who is also known as Jude, who wrote the other, the epistle of Jude. So two half-brothers of Jesus, James and Jude, wrote two of the epistles that we find in the New Testament. And so James wrote this epistle. He's the half-brother of Jesus. So something about the author, he had... He grew up with Jesus, half-brother. So you can imagine, you know, the typical Jewish home, uh, five of them, five brothers. We don't know how many sisters. Uh, and, uh, you know, a Jewish home was not only a social unit, but also a strong religious unit. They were taught, they were, you know, very disciplined, go to the synagogue together, very closely knit. The brothers, the bond between the brothers was... Uh, was very close, you know, they would stand up for each other. That, that was a typical Jewish family. And so the brothers growing up together, of course, would uh, have also learned their father's trade. Uh, in this case, uh, uh, being a carpenter, they would have learned that. They would have even been known as uh, the carpenter's boys, uh, you know, and they grew up learning that trade and so on. And uh, just try to imagine this with me, that at some point, when Jesus came about 30 years of age, he decides to leave home and embark on a preaching ministry. And he's out there. You know, of course, you know, we know what happened. He was baptized in Jordan. Then he spent 40 days in the wilderness and all of that before he started his ministry. But here Jesus begins his ministry. And uh, there are, you know, he starts preaching. There are crowds of people coming to listen to him. People are being healed. Demons are being cast out. Miracles are happening. What do you think would have been the reaction of these four brothers? The Bible tells us that none of the brothers of Jesus believed in him. They didn't. In uh, John chapter 7, and you can see this verse, John 7 in verse 5, it tells us clearly, his brothers did not believe in him. So James was actually an unbeliever. He didn't believe in Jesus. He said, man, something's gone wrong. Our brother's gone. He's gone off the deep end. Something's wrong. And we were with him for 30 years. And whatever happened, maybe those 40 days in the wilderness, 
we don't know how James and the other brothers were processing this whole thing. What we do know is they did not believe in Jesus. They didn't believe. So they saw Jesus crucified. They didn't believe. They said, okay, that's the end. He deserved it probably. But then something happened. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, in the 7th verse, that the resurrected Christ appeared to James, his half-brother. So after Jesus rose up from the dead, during the 40 days, when he was showing himself alive to many people, one of them was he showed himself alive to James. And that made a believer out of him. And not just him, all the others. So while James did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry, because he saw the crucified one now as the resurrected one, his life has changed. He believed. And so this is a big testimony to the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Somebody who didn't believe his earthly ministry became a believer, and the only reason is Christ was risen. And so you find the brothers of Jesus sitting in the upper room in Acts 1 and verse 14. It says, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So now the brothers have all been saved and converted, and they are seated in the upper room waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the only reason... His resurrection. Because they didn't believe him in his earthly ministry. Are you with me so far? So now James has become a believer. He was there on the day of Pentecost. Baptized in the Holy Spirit. Along with the other 120 who were there in the upper room. And uh, they were part of the church when it was born from the very beginning in Jerusalem. Now what we see in the book of Acts and in the other epistles is that James eventually became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, many of us think Peter must have been the leader. No, he was, you know, the person God used to preach the inaugural message on the day of Pentecost. And he was also the person God used to preach the inaugural message out to the Gentiles, that is to Cornelius. But the leader of the church in Jerusalem was James, the half-brother of Jesus. And we can verify this, you know, as you look through in the book of Acts. By the time you come to Acts chapter 12... Uh, which is approximately AD 44. So if you like dates, uh, these are approximate dates, of course, they're not precise. Uh, if the church, if the resurrection of Christ took place around AD 33, the church was born AD 33, approximately 10 years later, you come into Acts, the 12th chapter, it's AD 44. We know that because Herod Agrippa was killed or died that year, so that's a, a date that we can reference. Around that time in Acts 12, Peter is reporting to James. You know, when Peter is released from the prison, he sends, says, go tell James, I've come out. Then we find others. In, uh, later on in Acts 15, which again is approximately AD 51, uh, when the first council was held in Jerusalem, uh, the apostles and the elders all got together in Jerusalem to make a decision. What should we do when Gentiles, that means non-Jewish people, become believers in Christ? So they had a council. The presiding leader of that council, you see in Acts 15, was James. He gave the final decision. And then later on in Acts 21, verse 9, when you come to Acts 21, uh, you also see that the apostle Paul, he reports to James. He comes to Jerusalem to report to James his ministry. And then in Galatians 2, verse 9, when Paul is writing his epistle to Galatians, he mentions James first in line of all the apostles preceding Peter and John. So uh, putting all of this together, we, it is very evident that James is the foremost leader in the church in Jerusalem. Are you with me so far? Right? So he's become the leader in the church in Jerusalem. We know he was married. First Corinthians chapter 9 tells us James was married. So you can be an apostle and be married. Right? Be happy. All right. And, uh, uh, but James, uh, just by tradition, we know that he was, he was known as James the Just, a very uh, man, very prayerful man, a very uh, deeply religious man. Now, what is very interesting is that this epistle of James is the first book of the New Testament to be written. 
approximately, it was written in AD 44, prior to the council, the first council in Jerusalem, AD 51. So the book was written sometime around, if you want to reference it with the book of Acts, around Acts chapter 10, when Peter is being sent out to the Gentiles. Because at this time, when James was writing his episode, the gospel has not yet been taken out to the Gentiles. Or Gentiles coming to Christ was not yet an understood thing in the early church. So the first book of the New Testament to be written is this book, the book of James, around AD 44, prior to the Gospels that were written. And if you, if you, if you look at the Gospels, the first Gospel that was written was Luke, the Gospel of Luke around AD 63. Then Mark was written around AD 66. Um, Matthew was written around AD 67. And John's epistle was written much later, around AD 85. And these are approximate dates, but conventionally accepted dates when the Gospels were written. And Paul's first epistle was written after the Council in Jerusalem, so somewhere around AD 51, 52. Uh, Paul's first epistle, that's 1 Thessalonians, that was written later on. So James was written back in AD 44, meaning much before all the revelation of the New Testament, much before the revelation or understanding of Gentiles coming to Christ, or us being new creation in Christ, or us you know, knowing our identity in Christ, and all of those things. All that revelation was released through the apostles much later. Are you with me? So, James is writing primarily, you know, this is just about 10 years after the church has been born, maximum 11 or 12 years, after the church has been born. And so he's addressing his letter to the Jewish Christians. He's not even thinking about the Gentiles yet, because that understanding is yet to come or is just beginning to come to the church. So he's addressing it to the Jewish Christians. And at this time, of course, you understand in Acts 8, there was a great persecution so the Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, were scattered out of Jerusalem. Uh, primarily, they moved north, that is, into modern-day Syria. They moved east, which was the modern-day Iraq, or those days, Babylonia, Mesopotamia. And some of them went westwards, you know, even to, towards the Mediterranean, which will be modern-day Turkey. So a lot of Christians there. Some would have gone down south, which is modern-day Egypt. Uh, so the Jewish Christians have been scattered around that region, and James is writing to them, uh, following the persecution and the dispersion of the Jewish Christians. So that's the context. Now, many of these Jewish believers were facing very difficult times. First of all, they were displaced from their own home. They were despised because they had left Judaism and embraced Christ. Many of them had to work in very small jobs. I mean, they could have started off well, but now you're dispersed, you're scattered, you take up whatever job you're given, and they're working small jobs. Sometimes they're working under Jewish uh, bosses who are very you know, tough with them. And so they're going through difficult times. And so he's writing to them. And in the book of James, you don't find too much doctrine, but the beautiful thing about the book of James is it's very practical. He's talking about how to hold your faith in Jesus Christ in everyday life. How do you live your life as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus? So the book of James is very practical, not too much heavy doctrine, more of here are all the different situations, and here's how, as a believer, you live out your faith. Are you with me? Right, so let's go into James chapter 1, and let's see how far we get this morning. Uh, please follow with me, James chapter 1. We'll start off with verse 1. He introduces himself, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. Now notice how he introduces himself. He didn't say, hello, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, and I'm going to tell you all the naughty things Jesus did. Before he started his ministry. No, that's not how he starts his episode. He does not even bear any relevance or give any weight to that physical relationship that, you know, that they shared for 30 years, imagine. He just says, I'm a bond servant. That means 
A servant who has willingly placed himself in submission for life under his master. That's the meaning of that word bond servant. And he has chosen for the rest of his life to live in submission to his master. That's a bond servant. So I'm a bond servant to God who is my father and to the Lord Jesus Christ. See with what reverence he's addressing someone whom he knew in the earthly sense as a half-brother. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's addressing the audience to all those of the 12 tribes of Jewish Christians who've been scattered abroad greetings. Then we're going to read verses 2 to 4. The first thing that he addresses has to do with their immediate struggles. And here's what he has to say. Verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So the first thing he starts addressing is trials. Oh, all of them are going through it. They've been displaced, dispersed, having to find means to make a living, all of that. So he says, brethren, count it all joy. When you fall into various trials. Now, the word trials is very interesting because when you look at it in the Greek, it's a word that could refer to trials as in hardships, difficulties. Or that same word is also in the New Testament translated temptations or inducement to sin. It's the same word. In fact, a little later on in, in verse 12, that same word is translated temptation. So it's just like in English, you may have words uh, that could mean different things depending on the context. So here that word trials is used like that. One, it could mean hardships, or it could also mean temptations, depending on the context. Here, so in verse 2, he's talking about hardships, difficulties, challenges that you're facing in life. What does he tell them to do? He says, count it all joy when you fall into. That word fall doesn't mean you're facing one trial. It simply means you're falling into and you're surrounded, you're encompassed with trials. Meaning you've got trials all around you. That's the picture, fall into. And he says, count joy, something that you're you can be cheerful, cheerful, or even a calm assurance. But that word count is very interesting because that word count has the idea of a, of a, of a person in leadership, of a governor or a, of a leader who, who decides, who commands that something is going to be. So when he says, count it all joy, he's saying, you, as a leader, make the choice to be joyful when you're surrounded by difficulties. In other words, joy is not something that happens to you, kesara, kesara, if it happens, happens. Joy is something that you choose to have regardless of your situation. So you count it. You take leadership as a leader. You stand up and you say, I choose, I command to be joyful. Count it. That means there's that sense of leadership, that a sense of dictating joy rather than waiting for joy to happen. So count it all joy, brethren, when you fall, when you're surrounded by trials. But why and how? Next verse, verse 3. Because of what you know. What do you know? Knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces patience. So when your faith is tried, the word tried, that simply means to put to the proof. You've got to prove it, test it, validate it, verify it. So when your faith is tried, what does it do? It produces something. It produces patience or endurance. 
our perseverance, our, you know, I'm just giving you synonymous words, you, something will register, right? Our steadfastness, our continued sus- sustaining, the ability to endure through, tra- through time, the testing of your faith produces or develops endurance, patience. But why is patience so important? What's the big deal? If you go to Romans, we just cross-reference a little bit. If you go to Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, this is the Apostle Paul. He's, of course, writing many years later. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. He kind of echoes what James is saying in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. He says, And not only that, but we glory in tribulation. Tribulation, again, talking about difficulties. Because tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And what does perseverance do? And perseverance, what's the next word? Character. How is character formed? That strength of the inner person, of who you really are. It is formed through this process. That when your faith is tried, it develops endurance or perseverance or steadfastness or joyful continuance. And perseverance develops character. Character is like diamond. Diamond is forged out of carbon when carbon is subject to extreme pressure and temperature. You've got something with the ordinary carbon. The other side, you've got diamond, but it goes through extreme pressure and temperature. Are you with me? So character doesn't come by somebody laying hands on you. You cannot be anointed with character. Character has to be developed. Amen? And how is it developed? When you go through real life situations and you let it develop endurance and endurance brings out character and character makes us people of hope that means in tribulation we can still have hope why because we've gone through this and we are people of character we've got that moral inner inner strength in us so count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing, you know this, that the trying of your faith produces endurance. And we see in Romans 5, endurance develops character. And character is the diamond that God's looking for. And so he says in verse 4, but let patience have It's perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, stay the course. Let patience run its full course so that you can come out perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, you know, if you and I set out on a course, like, you know, most of us sign up for online learning courses. But... Online learning, dropout rate, I think it's over 80, 90%. Nobody finishes it. It's free to sign up. It's easy to sign up. Courses are there. But to finish it is very difficult. We don't stay the course. But here he's saying, let patience have its perfect work, its complete work. So that you may be that diamond. That you may be perfect and complete, perfect, lacking nothing, complete, fully grown, mature. So where does maturity come from? You know, we say like, I want to be spiritually mature. Well, nobody can impart or lay hands on you and give maturity to you. It comes through this process. Let patience have its perfect back. But think about this, you know, even in everyday life, 
Whom would you trust? If you had some really important assignment to be carried out, would you give that to a novice or would you look for somebody who's been tried and approved? Whom would you pick? You'd probably lean towards somebody who's been proven. And so also in the kingdom of God. That God entrusts us as he has proven us through life's journey. He entrusts us with assignments. Are you with me? So he addresses them off the bat. He says, let's talk about trials. But then when you're going through trials, what is that one thing you and all, all of us need? Of course we need strength and so on. But one thing we need is we need wisdom. So the very next thing that he goes into talking about, let's move forward to the next few verses, verses 5 through 8, is talking about wisdom. He says, so this is James 1, verses 5 through 8. So having addressed the issue of trials, he says, now, now I know you've got to go through these trials and there's value in it, but what do we need? We need wisdom. So verse 5, if any of, we read verses 5 through 8, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So one of the things we all need wisdom, of course, in everyday life situations, but especially when we are going through these trials. Oh God. Give me wisdom. Because I don't know what to do. How do I go through this? Eh? Hardships, trials. What do we need? Wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, it means you need to know what to do. Here's what we must do. He says, let him ask God. And then he teaches us something about God. He says, you ask God who gives. God is a giving God. So let's all say this together. God is a giving God. All right, I can only hear sound from there. What about God is a giving God? Right? So he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives. And how does God give? Continues, he gives to all. And he gives to all liberally. And without reproach. That means, that means without scolding. Some of us give what we scold. <laughs> you came back again, fifth time. God is not like that. God gives, He gives to all, He gives liberally, and He gives without scolding. That's our God. And it's quite possible that James saw this embodied in the person of Christ. He probably saw this in Jesus. Now he's putting two and two together, right? He saw the earthly life of Christ. That time it didn't, you know, he thought of just a brother. But now he knows Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. And all this is coming together. This is who God is. I saw it in Jesus. I'm just making this assumption, but I think it's a valid thing. That's why he can write. If you lack something, you ask God because he gives he gives to all. He gives liberally. He gives without scolding. But, he says, let's ask in faith. Don't doubt. Because he says, if we doubt, we are like the waves of the sea driven and tossed. We are like, you know, we come back and forth, back and forth, on and off, on and off. Yes and no. Believing, not believing. Don't do that. Ask in faith. Without doubting. So faith is again a very important theme in the episode. You'll find that he brings it up again in chapter 5. He talks about faith. And the Lord Jesus taught us about faith. How to ask the Father in faith. So here James seems to be echoing that. He says, you ask in faith, no doubting. And if you're double-minded, you're unstable. Now being double-minded 
Again, there's another theme that James repeats later on in chapter 4. Here he's talking about being double-minded about faith in God. In chapter 4, he talks about being double-minded about, being, about a friendship with God. There are two things you and I should not be double-minded about. We should never be double-minded about our faith in God and never be double-minded about our friendship with God. These two things are settled. I will have faith in God and I am choosing friendship with God. No second guesses, no second thoughts on that. Amen? So he says, don't be double-minded. Ask with faith. Because if you're double-minded, then you're not going to receive anything from the Lord. So, trials, wisdom, faith. Faith is an important theme of this episode. As I mentioned, he talks about how faith is lived out in various situations of life. That's probably the main thing of this episode. And he begins by telling us how you use faith in receiving from God. And he's going to address a lot of other areas where you're exercising faith. He talks about how faith you know, helps us go through trials that we face in life. Faith, receiving from God, wisdom from God. Now wisdom is a topic James will revisit again when we come to chapter 3, and he will talk, talk to us about how wisdom from God is expressed. That means how can you tell if you're really walking in the wisdom of God? He'll address that in verse three, in chapter 3. But here, he's told us how to receive wisdom from God. What do you do? Ask God. Chapter 3, he'll tell us, this is what wisdom from God really looks like in everyday life. Are you with me so far? All right, can we go forward? Yeah. When I see everybody nodding, we will, it's, time to be, it's time to pause, I think. <laughs> Verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has a sun risen with, with a burning heat that it withers the grass its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. So another common theme in the epistle of James is the rich and the poor. The rich and the poor. It's, you find it in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter, uh, chapter 4, and chapter 5. It's addressing that. Because, like we said, there are Certain Jewish Christians are doing very well, and there are certain ones who are not doing very well. So the first word of encouragement or instruction he gives is, if God lifts up somebody who has been poor, lifts them up, he says, let him thank God. Let him glory or let him be happy in the fact that God has raised him up. But to the rich, he says, you you be careful to be humble. Humiliation. It's not like God's going to humiliate you in the sense of wiping things away. But it's you walking with a humble heart. He teaches us that in chapter 4. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That he may exalt you. Because it's God who gives grace to the humble. So he says to the rich, what you must boast in is the grace to be humble. And how can we be humble? First, we realize that everything we have has been given to us by God. And second, we realize the fleeting nature of these things. He says, just like the sun that comes up and dries off the flowers is gone, these things will go. So don't depend on these things. Right? So he brings that sense of I'll just use the word equality, that sense of togetherness, whether we are rich or poor. And he'll repeat that again in chapters 2 and 4 and 5. You know, that you know, God may lift up a poor person and bless them wonderfully. And if a person has been blessed, stay humble. Keep your heart humble. That's where your glory is. Are you listening? So he deals with that, the rich and the poor. He's going to talk more about that uh, in the coming chapters. The next thing he moves on to in verse 12 is to talk about the whole issue of temptation. So we'll read verses 12 through 17. 
Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So verses 12 to 17, temptation. Next topic. So he says, blessed is everyone who endures temptation. Same idea. Previously, he was talking about trials. Now he's talking about temptation. Temptation is inducement to sin, to do something wrong. Trials is just hardships, tough situations. And he says, if you endure, you've got to endure trials, you also have to endure temptations. That means you stay the course through it. Not yielding to it, of course, but overcoming it. Blessed is he who endures temptation. For when he has been tried, there are two things that try our faith. The trials we go through and the temptations we overcome. There is heat and pressure. There are trials and there are temptations that really put our faith, that prove our faith. So he says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been tried or approved, he will receive a crown of life, which the Lord has prepared for those who love him. Now think about this. You love the Lord? Doesn't mean you won't face temptation. Someone says, Lord, I love you so much. Why am I facing temptation? He says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, that means he's come through and tries, been proven, he will receive a crown of life. So just because you love the Lord doesn't mean you won't face temptation. But now James is explaining to us the truth concerning temptation. He says, let no man say, when I'm tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Because God does not tempt us with evil, neither is he tempted by anyone. He says, don't blame God when you're tempted. And as he says later on, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, verse 16. In other words, it is deception to blame God for our temptation. But that's exactly what the devil wants you to believe. The devil wants you to believe that this inducement to do evil is actually God's presentation to you. Example. You're in the office. I'm just making this up, okay? You can, have, you can make up many examples. But you're in charge, let's say, of the finances of your organization or whatever, maybe your department or whatever. And you have a loan of a certain amount that you have to pay. And then you have certain money in your workplace that you are in charge of. Let's say you're about to close a deal and that person there says, look, if you give me this money, I will give you so much as a kickback. I say, wow, maybe it's God's way to provide for me. God is making provision. And the amount he's willing to give you as a kickback is the exact amount you need to pay to clear the loan. Say, so this is divine providence. The numbers match. And the date by which he's willing to give you the kickback is two days just before the amount is due. So that's definitely God. James says, let no man say when he's tempted, he's tempted by God. Are you listening? 
That's an inducement to do something evil, something wrong. And that cannot be God. Don't deceive yourself. But then he explains to us how temptation happens. Verse 14, each man is tempted when he's drawn by his own desires. That word drawn in the Greek has a very interesting picture. It's like alluring somebody, uh, 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 um, a game out of its place of safety so that you know, whoever is hunting can catch it. Drawn. To draw you out of your place of safety. So what do desires do? Our desires pull us out of our place of safety. Now Satan can only play with your desires. The world can only pull on your desires. But ultimately it's your desires that is pulling you out of your place of safety. Are you listening? Yes or no? Because if you don't, if you keep silent, then I'll have to repeat the whole thing. Go back to verse one. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. But each man, each one is tempted when he's drawn by his own desires. Our desires pull us out of our place of safety. So never say that devil made me do it. No, the devil can only play on your desires. Never say my friends made me do it. The world can only pull on your desires. But it's your desires that brought you out of your place of safety. So every man is tempted when he's drawn by his own desires. Man and woman, just general. And enticed. Enticed is trapped. So what do our desires do? They bring us out of our place of safety and they trap us. They make us captives. And when desire is conceived, that means desire is yielded to it, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it, when it is full grown, that means you continue in it, it becomes a dominating factor in your life, then it brings forth death. So he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't blame God or don't blame something else. For your temptation. Face up to it. Take responsibility. It's your own desires. And later on in chapter 4. He's going to once again address this issue of desire. He's going to talk about. Our desire for pleasures. So he's going to bring that subject up again. And he's going to be very strong. Uh, in addressing that. In chapter 4. We'll leave it for the hard one. For a little later. And he's saying. Temptation happens. Because of our own desire. But this is who God is, verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift comes down from above. Is it good? Does it have virtue? Does it have honor in it? Is it perfect? Is it wholesome? Every good and perfect gift comes from above. If it's not good, if it's not wholesome, say no. It's not from God. Every good. Every perfect gift is from above. There's no inducement to do evil. There's no inducement to do wickedness. It's good. It's perfect. It's virtuous. It's wholesome. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. From the Father of lights. He's not only God who is light, but everything that is of light is from Him. He's a Father of lights. And in him there is no variation, no shadow, no darkness, not even a shadow. That's who God is. Amen? Now this is how far we went in our 8 o'clock service. Um, you know, once Paul preached the whole night... So, should we try and break his record? 
I don't know. I, I think we will pause here. We'll just, you know, let it settle in. Otherwise, we might have scripture indigestion. And, you know. Are you with me so far? Right? We'll pause here. You know, I don't want to overload you. I mean, the plan was to cover the whole chapter, but uh, we'll just pause here. But, you know, God's Word is anointed by the Holy Spirit, and it sets us free. The truth sets us free. The truth liberates. The, lo- the truth transforms us. And I'm sure that, worship team, please come. I'm sure that as we have been listening to God's holy word and just taking time to see how it applies into our lives, I'm sure that God by his spirit is working in each of our lives. And I'm just so amazed how what James wrote in AD 44, and the church was just, you know, about 10 or 11 or 12 years into its journey, how much of, how it all applies to us today. I don't think there's one verse that we read today that we could say does not apply to us. Not one. Every verse that we read is so relevant to us today. We are here, you know, 2,000 years more or more later, sitting and reading. I say, hey, this, it's like it all matters to us today. Everything he's written applies. This has to be the Holy Spirit. Amen? Because it's timeless truth coming from the eternal God speaking to his people. I call our pastors up and let's all rise to our feet. We're just going to let God work. I want you to take a few moments to pray before we close out this morning. And whatever we heard from God's word today, come. Ravi and others, please come, Selina. If Nancy is here and Roshan, Benny, please pick up the mics as well. Whatever you've heard, and I know we, we covered several points. James had so many points that he spoke about. And out of all of that, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three, meant something to you today. Take a few moments to pray about that before we dismiss. Maybe it's about the portion about trials. Maybe it's the portion about character or wisdom or faith or the rich and the poor or about temptation. You know, we, there were so many things that, that James spoke to us about. Something that you feel is for you. Just pray, talk to God. Say, God, that is speaking to my heart. And I respond to your word. I respond to what you're saying to me. Please take a few moments to pray. And we will pray for you and then we will close. As the worship team leads us, you can sing along, but continue in prayer. And let's talk to the Lord. Amen. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you. I worship you. You are here, working in this place. I worship you, I worship you, you are here, moving in our midst, I worship you, I worship you, you are here, working in this place. 
I worship you. I worship you. You are the maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God. That is who you are. You are the maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God. That is who you are. You are here, touching every heart. I worship you. I worship you. You are here, healing every heart. I worship you. I worship you. You are here, turning lies around. I worship you. I worship you. You are here, mending every heart. I worship you. I worship you. Oh, you are waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My
Thank you, Jesus. We're going to just take a few more minutes to minister. Uh, just give the Holy Spirit time just to speak to us. And so just be open, just, just a few more minutes. And, and let the Lord minister, let the Lord speak and minister to us. Father, we just pray that every person will leave this place having met with you, having encountered you personally, God, that the time that was spent here was worth it. Something changed. Something happened in your presence. We thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. And I just want to just speak a word, and I'm sure others will also minister. And, yeah, I'm just speaking to some, you know, people who've who are in this situation where you're wondering, you know, is it okay to be rich? And I know we spoke about it, we read about it. And you're wondering, is it, is it all right? And you have these questions in your heart. Is it okay to be rich for the sake of the kingdom or whatever? Is it right for a believer to be rich? And I just want to you know, assure you from the word of God and based on the things that it's perfectly fine. As long as we make the choice to honor God with what He blesses us with. Being rich itself is not a sin. It's when riches control us, that's the problem. And so perhaps there are some here this morning saying, you know, you're just struggling with it. You're not sure. You're not settled in your heart that it's, it's fine if God blesses you. And thank God that he blesses us so that we can be a blessing. We can be a blessing. So today, this morning, may the Lord give you that sense of freedom to receive the blessing of wealth and riches, not just to waste it on ourselves, but to be a blessing. Have that freedom. Wealth is not going to control you, but you control it for the purpose of God. To bless people, to help people. Of course, you take care of your own needs, your family. But God entrusts us with riches so that we can be stewards of it for the purpose of His kingdom. So be released, be released, be blessed. Just open it up to the pastors. If any, you have anything to share, please go ahead. Please go ahead. Um, I, I heard something very similar. Um, I, I believe that God is releasing wisdom to uh, for us to make very wise uh, financial decisions. And uh, whether it's uh, planning for your life ahead, um, uh, whether it's uh, just making good choices, Maybe uh, it's for business, uh, but I just uh, I just believe that God is releasing the grace and wisdom for wise financial decisions. So, if anyone uh, you know really uh, connects to this, just want to pray this over you. Just want to declare the the wisdom of the Lord, which He gives without uh, without holding back and without reproach. We just declare this wisdom. Uh, for wise uh, financial decisions. We just pray this over you. We declare this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Man, man, man. Man, uh, even as we were worshipping, I saw this beautiful image of uh, jars of water being turned to wine. And um, I just believe that God is getting ready to step in and if you've been waiting on and same situation seems impossible and how is this going to happen? Um, God is getting ready to turn this jars of water into wine and you are going to see his supernatural favor of provision over your life. And so, Father, we want to thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God of impossible. You are the God who turns the jars of water into wine, Jesus. You are the God who multiplies five loaves and two fish. 
And so we thank you, Jesus, that your hand of provision is in this place. Divine provision, divine favor. And we thank you that you are stepping in. And that you are working even if we don't feel like it or see it, Jesus. words brokenness and alabaster joy uh, jar uh, if someone here is broken and or watching online you're totally broken in life you're contemplating suicide god is saying that i'm going to make your life as a fragrant offering a perfume that is going to spread his fragrance and he's just saying just trust in me Father, we, in Jesus' name, we just break the spirit of brokenness, God. We break the spirit of suicide. We rebuke that spirit in the mighty name of Jesus. We thank you, God, that on the cross you've taken all our curse, our shame, our brokenness, our pain. And God, you've given us your life, your Zoe life, the fullness of life, the eternal life, God. We thank you that you're promising this loved one that you love them, God. You love them, that, that you have plans to prosper them, God. That their life is going to be a fragrant, a fragrant offering, not only to you, but to those around, Father God. We pray that they will put their hope and trust in you, God. We thank you that you're just filling up their hearts with your love, with your peace. We thank you that your shalom is covering them like a mighty mantle, God. We bless you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we were worshipping, I just saw uh, so the word uh, dryness. So I saw the land a uh, small piece of land it was completely dried out and i saw a single tree uh, in it and it's dried so uh, god is giving this message to some of you that you know you are feeling uh, yourself and your family dried up so much here is the encouragement so god will revive us back and there is a life in it god is going to give life into the dryness Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. This dryness will disappear in the name of Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Lord, this dry land, a single tree will get its life in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. We speak and declare, Father. Lord, we pray, God, you're going to do this. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you, God. I would like to pray uh, for, I think, right hand pain. Maybe it is very severe. Uh, as I was coming up, I, I could sense, you know, right hand. It's paining very severely. So I just pray. Lord Jesus, we pray in the name of Jesus. The pain in the right hand will disappear in the name of Jesus. It was severe. Lord, we pray and we climb in the name of Jesus. Lord, we speak your healing over right hand, Father. Right now, right now, Jesus. We pray, Father. We command healing in the name of Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 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 Did any of the things that were spoken, if, it, if any one of those things you know, spoke to your heart, just raise your hand and just give thanks to God. Just raise your hands. Yes, see hands, several hands going up, several hands. Thanks. Let's thank the Lord. Thank God. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, God, for speaking and ministering to your people. Amen. Amen. Um, before we close, those of you who are first time with us, 
We have a welcome lounge for you. Uh, it's out in the main foyer. So if you're visiting with us for the very first time or you've just been visiting a few Sundays, please, after service, after we dismiss, if you could make your way to the foyer. Uh, there's a welcome lounge. There'll be a group of people waiting to meet with you, to get to know you, and uh, just spend some time with you. So we request you to please do that. Let's close. Our pastors will be available here if you want us to you know, pray with you personally. Sorry, they have to go for water baptism. Sorry, they will go for water baptism. I'll be here. <laughs> uh, those of you who have come prepared for water baptism, please head out to a swimming pool uh, at St. Joseph's. The pastoral team will go there. They'll be waiting for you there, and they'll get started. I'll be here to pray with you if you uh, want us just to pray and minister. Okay, let's close. Father, thank you for speaking to our hearts today and touching our lives. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, our Heavenly Father, and the sweet fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with each of us always, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. We trust this message was a blessing to you. For more free resources, including sermons, sermon notes, and books, please visit apcwo.org. For information on APC Bible College in Bangalore, visit apcbiblecollege.org. Do remember to download the All People's Church Bangalore app from the Apple or Google Play Store.